joy to be able to share with you a little bit about our organization, Fostering Hope New England. Fostering Hope is a ministry that exists to engage and equip the Christian community to love and serve the foster care community. Essentially, we want to bring the power of the gospel to bear upon this community of people that is under-resourced and honestly in great crisis. I'll say more about this as part of my application in the sermon. Uh, but in particular, our desire is to help to raise up more Christian families to serve as foster and adoptive families. Uh, there's a great chronic shortage, and so there's a need for safe, loving homes. So we want to kind of stir up God's people to understand the need and to consider being part of the solution. And then as the Spirit calls people to engage, we want to help equip them to succeed and to be effective in this calling. So we create awareness of the need. We create awareness of the biblical apologetic that would call Christians to be part of the solution. We cast vision by uh, trying to fuel the moral imagination of God's people with what could be as Christians rise up and open their hearts and homes to these children in need. And then we coordinate solutions. As God, the Spirit stirs up his people, we connect the resources and desire to serve among God's people with the, the need that exists in the foster care community. Fostering Hope was birthed out of the life experience that my wife and I had, birthed out of some very hard providences in our own life uh, together. You know, God often writes a script for our life very different than the one that we wrote, as most of you could testify to. It's always wiser, always better, but it's also often harder than we would have chosen. So when we were planning our marriage and envisioning life together, we kind of imagined a, a large family. But several years into our marriage, the baby room was, was still empty. And so we ultimately, after some time, came to the kind of heartbreaking recognition that we were among the 10% of American couples who struggle with some measure of infertility. And that was a hard season for us, especially for my wife, who had always dreamed of being a mother and having a, a large family. But God did give us peace and trust in him over time. And then we were left with the question of what next? And so after a lot of prayer and research and discussion, we decided that we should start our family by means of adoption. And at the time, the only financially feasible option for us was adoption through the foster care system, since it doesn't cost anything to do that. And so we got licensed in 2004, and in the fall of 2004, we were introduced to this young man who was two at the time. This is the first picture we saw of him. He's now 14 and sitting in the front row there. And I asked for his permission, and he begrudgingly said, yeah, that's kind of awkward, but okay. And so he was placed with us at the age of two as a pre-adoptive placement. And his adoption actually took three years to finalize. So in the fall of 07, we were in a judge's chamber where Isaac uh, was adopted officially as a reed. And in the meantime, we had moved back to Rhode Island, Providence, where we've lived for the last nine years. And so at that point, we were left with the question, okay, well, now what? We wanted to continue to expand our family. But Isaac was five at the time, and we really wanted to keep his age in the family as the oldest. And the average adoptable child in the system is about eight. And so we thought, well, why don't we try foster care? Every child in the system who's adoptable began as a foster child, and you have them as young as infants. So let's take care of some children, and maybe the Lord will uh, lead uh, us to adopt some of them if they need that. And so we ended up adopting, we fostered about 30 kids from a weekend to several years at a time, depending on the situation. And three of them, in addition to Isaac, have become adopted children. Asa, who's six years old, Jaden, he's five, and then little Liana is three. Little did we realize when, as we were going through this process and made that decision, that God would use that experience of switching from pre-adoptive focus to foster care to completely, uh, really radically transform our hearts and, and lives. When we were pursuing adoption with Isaac, it was primarily about our desire to start a family, which is a good desire and a good reason to pursue adoption. But we weren't compelled by the need. We really weren't even aware of the extent of the need. And we certainly weren't being driven by any kind of biblical principle about it. But when we began to do foster care, and we began to get phone call after phone call detailing some of the circumstances out of which these children had been removed. And then they began to come through our home one after the other. What was still a relatively abstract uh, group of children to us, that the foster kids of America became incredibly concrete. These were no longer statistics in a category. These were real kids with real names, real faces, real personalities, real needs, physicals, 
emotional, spiritual, real futures, temporal futures and eternal futures, and real souls. And so our hearts were just broken. These were real kids in real crisis, and they needed real love. And so personally, we were just compelled to do whatever we could to help serve them. And at the same time, I began to do three things. I began to study the need and what was the extent of the need in the country and in our region. I began to look at what was the church doing about this, if anything. And then I began to look at Scripture really for the first time in my life and consider, does Scripture either explicitly or implicitly speak to the Christian calling to be involved in this at all? And as I studied those three things out, several things happened. Number one, regarding the need, I learned that it was very extensive and it was very local. It wasn't a need out there somewhere. It was in the backyard of all of us as Christians, including Cornerstone Church and all the churches here in New England. And I'll share a little bit more about the need in the sermon in a few minutes. Regarding the Christian response, I discovered that Christians were engaged in a lot of international adoption, but at the time, not so much foster care and domestic adoption out of foster care, although that's been changing, but really nothing was happening in New England. And at the same time, I began to develop some deep biblical convictions about reasons why Christians ought to care about this issue and be willing to be involved at some level. And so as I kind of thought about all that at the same time, I began to get excited because I began to realize, you know, as great as the need is, the need is fixable or meetable, I should say, if the Christian community alone would rise up and open their heart and their homes to provide love and care for these children. And so I became convinced that really the issue was the Christian community needed to be made aware of the issue. They needed to have a vision for how this need could be met, and they needed to see a path, a supported path to accomplishing it. And so that compelled us four years ago, after a lot of thought and prayer, to found Fostering Hope New England, which is an organization, as I said, seeking to mobilize the Christian community to love and serve the foster care community. We see this as great commandment ministry, loving your neighbor as yourself. And our experience of the gospel compels us to see the neglected and hurting around us through the lens of our own experience of the gospel. And so as we seek to meet the physical and emotional needs of these children, we're really demonstrating the love of God in a cup of cold water kind of way, in a real tangible way, not just in word but in action. But then the beautiful thing is, once you begin to serve and love this community, you open up a whole platform of new relationships from social workers to case aides to biological family to the children themselves and certainly especially when they're adopted into your home and it really becomes great commission ministry. It becomes an opportunity to not just love people's physical needs but to connect them to their deepest need and that is to know and experience the love of God through Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so it is also great commission ministry, which really ties it to the mission of the church and our calling as individual Christians. So I want you to just to imagine the power of the bride of Christ unleashed, transforming lives, loving and serving those who are impacted by this crisis uh, for the sake of the gospel. Imagine a culture among God's people of effective compassionate and holistically pro-life orphan and foster care among Christians here in New England. Imagine the glory of God's adopting love shining brightly through his church, through his people, as they extend redemptive love to the foster care community. This really is the heart of our ministry and what we're trying to do as we uh, seek to cast vision and create awareness among God's people. So I'm excited to be here today. For four years, I've kind of overseen Fostering Hope as a side ministry, working full-time, being a lay pastor, a non-vocational at my church, being a foster dad, a husband, and all the rest. So it's been kind of just a little bit on the side, and we've been encouraged by what God has done. We've seen families get licensed. We've seen some significant ministry take place. But earlier this year, we just recognized the need is so great. And the opportunity is now that we were compelled by the Lord to pursue vocational ministry for the sake of the orphan. And so I applied to the North American Mission Board, and I've become an, an endorsed evangelism catalyst. And so I'm raising support as a missionary through them, and an evangelism catalyst seeks to catalyze 
catalyze evangelistic opportunities, especially by promoting and service in social arenas. And so it opens up a bunch of doors to give the gospel as we serve and love people in need. And as an evangelism catalyst, I'm overseeing Fostering Hope as its executive director. And so we are looking for churches and individuals to, first of all, join with us, most importantly, in catching a vision to extend the love that we've experienced to this community of people that exist in our backyard. And I would count it a joy to count uh, Cornerstone Church as, as, a, as a church that has this vision and desires to love and serve this community. And we're also looking for ministry partners who want to invest in our ministry to sustain us so that we can love and serve the orphan on behalf of the, the church. So thank you for the opportunity to be here. I'm thrilled to see you and to be in your midst, and I'm looking forward to opening up the word and sharing more about this in just a few moments. All right, well, let's just go to the Lord in prayer one more time before we open up his word. Father, we come before you so thankful for the grace that we've already sung about, that you've lavished upon us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, and his glorious work. Thank you for this scripture that's been read already, highlighting the lavish grace you've given us, every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Lord, as we open up your word now, we are thankful for it. We confess that it's your spirit that creates life and sustains our life as your people. So we pray that he would enable us now. We pray for those listening, that you would enable them to be good hearers of the word with a heart to submit and worship you in response. And we pray for me, Lord, as I speak, I ask that you would empower me by your spirit. It's, it's uh, your spirit that makes alive. My flesh will profit nothing. So we commit this time to you and ask that you would be glorified and that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want to begin by asking you to play just kind of a little word association game, just within your own mind. You don't need to call anything out. What comes to your mind, I wonder, when you hear the words foster child? What do you think of? What do you envision? What do you picture? And with that in your mind, second question for you. I don't know many of your, most of your backgrounds and what kind of things you've experienced in your life, but imagine for a moment that you're a child again, maybe five or six, and you've had a tough go of it, but it's home to you, and then suddenly, unexpectedly, you're removed from your family, removed from your siblings, removed from your neighborhood, removed from your friends, and placed in a new but strange neighborhood, school system, with new friends who you don't know, with a new family you've never met before, how would you feel? What kind of emotions would be running through your heart? Fear, anxiety, worry, guilt, confusion, anger, uncertainty, insecurity, to name a few possibilities. One more question. Knowing you're still five or six, okay, you've been removed, and you know enough to know that you're not going to be going home anytime soon. What is it that you would want and need more than anything in that scenario? As a five-year-old, you might have different thoughts about it, but I think as adults, we know that that child needs and really should want more than anything a safe, loving patient family willing to embrace them, that child as his or her own, either temporarily through foster care or long-term through adoption. At any given point in time in the United States, there are approximately 420,000 children and adolescents who have experienced something similar to what I just described. 24,000 of them here in New England and about 2,000 here in Rhode Island. Attached to every one of them is easily another 10 people, siblings, biological family, social workers, case aides, lawyers, etc. So that number really balloons to four to five million p 
people in our country who are part of and affected by the foster care crisis, about 300,000 here in New England. These are children who, at no fault of their own, have been removed from their primary biological caregivers due to substantiated allegations, in most cases, of abuse, neglect, abandonment, in some cases, predictive neglect based on things that have happened to their siblings. Now, as you can imagine, as I just described and you kind of thought through, entrance into foster care is a traumatic experience for these children. They've already endured some measure of difficulty in their home life, but it's, it's home to them. It's, it's the, who they're attached to. Now they face the added confusion of that removal, that separation from home, from family, from neighborhood, from friends. And oftentimes, they're, they're entered into a system where they end up bouncing from foster home to foster home, school to school, neighborhood to neighborhood, each loss, yet another wound in their already hurting heart. So sadly, studies bear out what we instinctively know to be true when we think about that, and that is that such instability has a negative often devastating impact on these young lives. Now, when you think about the kids in care, it's easy to reduce them to a statistical category, as I described earlier was our case, to just think of them as this kind of mass of kids, the, the foster kids of America. But to do so would be a dramatic mistake. Every single foster child in the system, all 420,000 that are in the system at any given point in time, is an individual person, as I said earlier, with a real name, a real face, a real personality, and a real future, a future that is both temporal here on earth and eternal. More significantly, every single one of them is an individual person uniquely created in the very image of God and thereby endued with an inherent dignity and value that's not only worthy of our care, but I believe demands our care as God's people. And this is particularly important for us who are part of the, 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 the Christian community in our country because for the past four decades, we've done an admirable job for the most part being passionate advocates for life in the womb, being opposed to abortion, being for life on the basis of that life in the womb being a creation of God and thereby having sanctity of life, which is true. But the question that we also have to ask is when that same child in the womb that we so passionately advocate for is born into a home who's unable to care for him or her, does that child lose any of its inherent dignity and value as an image bearer of God? And I see heads shaking because the answer is obvious, no. So one of our visions as an organization is to really see and help support the, the growth of, and, and really the continued growth, because I think it's happening, of a robust, holistic, pro-life uh, position among the Christian community from the womb all the way through the grave, including children in care. So simply put, foster youth are real kids in real crisis who desperately need real love. In particular, they need compassionate, committed families willing to love them through foster and adoptive care. But they also need other types of wraparound ministries of support and love and mentorship as well. Now, in a wealthy country of 315 million people or so, that is America, with millions upon millions of professing Christians, one would think that this need was easily met because 420,000 is a lot of people, but it's a statistical drop in the bucket compared to 315 million people. Sadly, though, in virtually every state in our country, including all the New England states, including Rhode Island, there is a chronic shortage of such families. In fact, just a couple weeks ago in the Providence Journal, the current acting director of DCYF in Rhode Island was interviewed. And she noted that really to get where they need to be in Rhode Island to have the families that they, they need to have to care for this need, they, they're about 500 families short in our little state. And so the result of this is too many children end up placed in group homes, which isn't ideal for them. They shouldn't be there. They need to be with a family. Too many sometimes are placed in subpar foster homes. Too many end up bouncing from foster home to foster home because the pool isn't big enough to be able to find the right match for that child. So they put them with this family, but it's not the right fit. And so they end up with this family and that family, and that just adds to the pain and the trauma. 
And too many children end up aging out of the system at the age of 18 or 21, having never achieved what they call permanency, which is either reunification with their biological family, or if that's not going to happen, adoption into a new family. And so they enter into life with no identity, no real family roots, no support network, and the statistics for such adolescents and young adults are really, really grim. Many, many of them end up underemployed, unemployed, homeless, uh, involved in substance abuse, uh, crime, and oftentimes they have children who end up in the system and the cycle continues. So there you have a brief overview of some of the need as it exists today, just a brief overview. And having laid that foundation, we as God's people want to ask the question, what should our response as Christians be to this? How should we think about this? Do we have any uh, obligation or any compelling reason to be concerned or to care? Well, as we should do with all matters, we want to look to Scripture for guidance. And as we do, and we're getting to our text, so I know this is a longer introduction, but bear with us. Looking to Scripture for guidance, we discover that Throughout Scripture, especially once the, the Exodus happens in Exodus 20 and the law is given and then the prophetic books, throughout Scripture there's command after command given to God's people to care for the vulnerable in their midst, to make provision for them, to advocate for them, to defend them, to not oppress them. Two of these commands in particular are important. I think most important of all, Isaiah 117 in James 1.27, because in those two passages, the commands are couched in such a way that they actually are presented as authenticating marks of genuine repentance and faith. So in Isaiah 1, God is calling his people to repent of their sins. And the very first marker of what genuine repentance would look like in their midst, Isaiah 1.17, is this call to defend the fatherless in their midst. And then in James chapter 1, of course, the book of James is all about authentic faith and what it looks like. And so in James 1.27, James says, pure religion, authentic religion. One of the markers of that is to visit the widow and orphan in their affliction. Now, foster youth are not orphans in the truest sense of the word, but they are functional orphans, unable for at least a brief period of time to live with their parents and so they would fall under this broad category of children who need to be visited and cared for. So since care for the orphan is a mark of authentic faith and repentance, it should come as no surprise that historically God's people, when exposed to the need, have acted to care for them. In fact, going back to the first century when the pagan Romans would have a very, very uh, diminished view of life, so much so that if a, a Roman father didn't want a child, often girls, they would leave them exposed on the rocks. And it was the Christian community in the first century that would take these children of the pagan Romans and welcome them into their home and raise them as their own. And from that point on, God's people through redemptive history have, and through uh, church history have always been compelled to show compassion and love to those most vulnerable in our midst. And it's my desire that God's people today in New England will rise up and do the same. So scripture asserts that Caring for the vulnerable and the, and the ch vulnerable children and the fatherless in our, in our midst is a defining mark or fruit of true Christianity. But that kind of begs the question, why is that the case? And there's many ways we could answer this, but this morning I want to zero in on what I think is the most significant. When a person is born into the family of God and believes the gospel... The Spirit of God produces within him or her the family trait that is characteristic of all true children of God. This trait, or I think you could call it a gospel impulse, a heart impulse, becomes the new all-encompassing ethic that governs not just how we respond to the crisis of orphans in our midst, but that actually governs the totality of our lives. So what is this family trait I'm referring to? What is this new gospel ethic that the Spirit produces in his people? In a word, it's the ethic of love. Love. Love is the family trait 
of authentic Christianity. Fish swim, right? They just do it. It's natural to them. Birds fly, at least most of them, just ingrained in them. They finally take that leap, and, and they're flying. Christians love. It's, it's, it's ingrained in our DNA as part of the work of the Spirit and the fruit of the gospel in our lives. And that's ultimately why Christians are compelled to care for the vulnerable and the fatherless in our midst. Not primarily out of duty or obligation or out of guilt, but a natural heart response to the need around us because the Spirit is progressively growing us in this Christ-like love. And so with all of that in mind, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. This is going to be our text that we kind of settle in on this morning. And as you're turning there, before we look at our text, let me set up the context. The theme of the book of Philippians could be expressed as the glory of God displayed in the church by means of or through the person of Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul is focusing on the doctrinal foundation of the Christian life, specifically the immeasurable grace lavished on us through Jesus Christ and the incredible work of Christ in creating the church, this one new man, this new creation uh, to the glory of God. So the focus of chapters 1 through 3 is our position in Christ and in his church. Well, then in chapters 4 through 6, as Paul often does in his epistles, he shifts his primary focus from the doctrinal foundation to the practical response and outflow of that doctrine. Specifically, how does our position in Christ and as part of his church, as demonstrated in 1 through 3, flesh itself out in our lives? So in chapter 4, 1, he says, you've been... Uh, receive this incredible calling, so walk in a manner worthy of it, and here's what that looks like. Verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4 describes how this impacts our relationship as part of the church. And then in verse 17, Paul begins to detail how our experience of the gospel rescues us out of the hopeless lifestyle of the world, and this is key here, by recreating us after the image of God. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 22, it says, We are to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this fact, the fact that as part of God's Saving work in our life, he's made us a new creature created or recreated after the very image or likeness of God begins to transform how we view and interact with the people and problems in the world around us. And the rest of chapter 4 gives examples of this. We don't need to lie anymore as image bearers of God. We, we speak the truth. We don't need to uh, harbor anger anymore, but instead we seek reconciliation. We don't steal anymore, but instead we work hard and we're generous to other people. We don't tear people down with our words anymore, but we build them up with words of grace. We aren't enslaved to bitterness and malice anymore, but instead we're kind, compassionate, quick to forgive because God's forgiven us in Christ. And that brings us to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, in light of this, in light of the fact that you've been recreated after the image of God and you've been recipients of God's mercy in Christ, therefore, church, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Those two verses are a text this morning. These verses have been described as the highest ideal of the Christian life. They sum up the Christian ethic in one comprehensive command. And the main point of these two verses, I think, could be expressed in this way, and this will be the main point of the sermon if you're taking notes. Imitate God by walking in love according to the gospel. Imitate God by walking in love 
according to the gospel. I have two simple points that follow the flow of the text and will help you follow along. The first point there in verse 1 is simply imitate God. And the second point is verse 2, walk in love. So let's consider, first of all, imitate God. Therefore, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, the word therefore, as we already noted, points us back to the context in which we are recreated after the image of God, and in verse 32, in which we are recipients of God's forgiving grace in Christ. And so, since God is this way and has done this work in our lives, therefore, in kind of summary, here's what Paul's saying. Imitate God. Be an imitator of God. Now, the word imitate simply means to mimic or copy someone or something. So if you have kids or seen young kids play the copycat game, which can kind of be annoying after a little while, but they, they start copying what you're doing, repeating what you're saying, mimicking your actions, they're mimicking you. They're doing exactly what you're doing. That's what this word literally means. It means to mimic. So he's calling God's people, excuse me, God is calling we as people to be mimickers or imitators of him to essentially bear his image in this world. Of course, by means of the spirit. Now, it, as we consider uh, this command to be imitators, notice the basis of this command. He says, imitate God as beloved or loved children. So I want us to kind of dig into that for a moment. We're called beloved children of God. Now, it's easy to kind of shrug our shoulders because we're so used to that. Yeah, we're children of God. Awesome. Do we understand how amazing this is? To be able to call ourselves children, sons and daughters of God. How is this even possible? Because contrary to popular popular belief, we're not all born into this world in a condition of being children of God. In fact, back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're described as children of wrath by nature, alienated from God because of our sin. We're sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice, and so we're justly separated from a holy God and stand under his judgment. So how do we go from that condition of being children of wrath to a few chapters later being described as children of God. Well, chapter 2 goes on to describe how we're forgiven of our sins and made new in Christ by grace through faith in Christ. But it's one thing to be rescued from our sin and to be uh, rescued from God's judgment. It's another thing to, to have the audacity to say, and now I'm actually a son or daughter of God. How is that possible? Well, we read it earlier. I'm so glad that passage was chosen. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul answers the question in, the, in this very letter. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins this letter by just bursting out in praise to God for the, the grace lavished upon us in Christ. And he says this in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You see that? That's how we've become sons and daughters of God. We've been predestined before the foundation of the world for adoption. Before you were ever thought of, or your ancestors, before the church age, before Christ came, before Israel was a nation, before Abraham was called, before Adam and Eve were created, before a single molecule existed in the created universe, God, according to Ephesians 1, marked out the boundaries of our lives unto adoption as sons and daughters. The word adoption means placement as a son. It refers to a legal act, a one-time moment by which a person is placed into a new family with all of the rights, privileges, and responsibilities that come with it. Now, I've gone through four earthly adoptions with our four children. I'll never forget any of those days, the highlights of my life. They were all special in their own way and similar and different. And I tell the story of, of what the judge said during Ace's adoption because it was real profound and it really got me thinking about this. 
we were in the judge's chambers, and he had looked through all our paperwork, made sure everything was done properly. He had asked us questions about uh, the adoption and what we were going to do moving forward. And then satisfied that all the legal requirements had been met, the judge began to make his final declaration by saying this. He said, from henceforth, this child shall hereby and forthwith be known as, and then he did something I wasn't expecting. And this is the only time this has happened in all four adoptions. He looked at me, and in his eyes I could tell he was expecting me to give Ace's new name at that moment. I could just tell. So this is how it went. From henceforth, this child shall hereby and forthwith be known as, and I said, Asa Michael Reed. And then the judge concluded by saying these five simple yet life-altering words. He said, and so it shall be. And he banged his gavel, and so it was. What a transforming moment in time for one family and one boy. And this was the case in all four adoptions. When that judge made that declaration and declared them and gave them the new name, everything changed for one child and one family. One legally binding declaration by a judge resulted in a new name, a new identity, a new family, and a new legacy for one child. One legally binding declaration resulted in a new son, a new brother, a new grandson, a new nephew, a new cousin, and a new heir for one family. As I thought about that later, I was overcome with how it's a faint echo of the much greater, more glorious work of adoption that God has done for his people in adopting us. Our father, at great cost to himself, sending his own son to die in our place, created space in his family for us. Christian friend, the same God, the same judge who declared you righteous and not guilty before him through justification at the same time through adoption welcomed you into his family as his own son or daughter. And along with that came all the rights, privileges that come with being an heir of God. So Christians are children of God by means of adoption an act in the past where you were placed in God's family as a son or daughter. And then as you look at that verse back in Ephesians chapter 5, you see that we aren't just children of God. Notice the little uh, adjective before that. We are beloved children of God. We aren't just simply God's children in a formal legal sense. We're deeply loved by our Father, beyond our capacity to even grasp it. In fact, this is the very... uh, purpose of God's adopting grace in chapter 1 verse uh, 4 there and 5 where it says in love he predestined us before the foundation of the world God set his redeeming everlasting love on you Christian friend in order to bring you into his family as a son or daughter and this really is the ultimate end from our perspective of salvation to the glory of God. Think of Galatians 4. When the fullness of time was come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We're redeemed from slavery to sonship with all its privileges. Essentially, what we have here is a restoration of fallen humanity to the glorious purpose for which we were originally created, to be image bearers of God in this world and enjoying his presence and blessing in Christ. Now, it's vital that we make this connection. The call for us to imitate God, here in verse 1, is not a means by which we earn his favor. Imitate God so that he will love you and accept you. Do you see that? The call to imitate God springs out of our position as children of God already in his favor. We are beloved children of God, therefore imitate him. Our position as God's children comes before and empowers our responsibility to act as God's children. 
who we are as recipients of God's grace in Christ shapes how we then live. The indicative, this is who you are, shapes and empowers the imperative. And a failure to get this right leads us into the pit of a, of a legalistic heart in which we're always attempting to earn God's favor in our life through our performance rather than pursuing holiness and obedience out of the overflow of the favor we already enjoy as God's children. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're here visiting, you're thinking about it, you're observing, we're so glad that you're here today. This is a safe place for you to be to hear the word faithfully taught and to see what it looks like to be a Christian and it's possible that your opinion of Christianity is a bit sour because you view it as a burdensome religion in which we're constantly trying to please God on ourselves and climb up that ladder and earn his favor by our own good works. The better we do, the more God's pleased with us and, and the more chance we have at making it to heaven. Further, you may view the church as filled with self-righteous people who, who are kind of puffed up and think they're better than everyone else because look at how much they've climbed up that ladder and look how better they are than everyone. And if that's your view of Christianity, I can understand why you might feel that way. But it's not an accurate picture of biblical Christianity. True Christianity turns our natural thinking upside down. The message of true Christianity is not climb the ladder of good works in order to achieve the presence of God in heaven. It's the opposite. It's the good news that God in his grace has condescended down to us in the person of Jesus, which we're celebrating at Christmas in the incarnation, in order to give his very life in our place for us, in order to bring us up to heaven by grace alone. Jesus doing what we could never do, living the life of perfect obedience that none of us could by living a life of, of, of submission to God and obedience to the law and then having earned nothing but God's favor and love, Christ laid his life down and took the penalty of sin that we deserve. So everyone who trusts in him alone discovers that Jesus is a perfect savior and by grace alone they are brought into a right relationship with God. And so if you're here not a Christian, I would urge you to trust in Christ even today. So our position as dearly loved sons and daughters motivates and empowers us to imitate God. He made us beloved sons, and so we gratefully seek to bear his image in this world. We want to reflect well on the family name. We want to uh, be like our father, who's perfectly reflected in his son, Jesus Christ. And because we are his sons, we share in his nature, and by means of this new nature, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're transformed increasingly to reflect the image of our Father, in particular, the family trait, which is love. And that leads us to our second point, because the question could be kind of overwhelming. We're supposed to imitate God? That's a tall task. How, how is that possible? What does he mean? And there's many things in Scripture that give insight on this, but in this context in particular, Paul doesn't leave us guessing what he means. That's, that's our second point this morning, verse 2, walk in love. You see how verse 2 of chapter 5 begins with the little word and, be imitators of God and walk in love? The word and joins the command of verse 1, be imitators of God, with the command of verse 2, walk in love. Now often in scripture when two commands are joined by a, that little conjunction, what's really happening is the second command is serving to further define and explain what's really meant by the first command. So it's kind of like this. If I said to Isaac, Isaac, go to your room and clean it. How many commands did I give him? Two. Now, are they two separate or connected commands? They're connected. The and gives that second command, which really explains what I want him to be doing. So if I just said, go to your room, that's a command, that's easy. He goes up and says, I it. But if I, go, if I say, go and clean your room, and he goes to his room, and an hour later I go up, and he's just laying in his room, and saying, well, Dad, it took a lot out of me to obey that first command. I'm just kind of hanging out here. I say, no, 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 you know what I meant, okay? Go to your room in order to clean it. That's the construction here. That's what Paul is saying. 
He's saying imitate God. In particular, what I'm referring to here is walk in love. And we see hints in the text. I mean, he calls us beloved children right in verse 1. So the Father has loved us. 432 talks about how God has been tender-hearted and compassionate and kind to us. And then there's the construction there of verse 5. Be imitators of God and walk in love. And so that's why the main point is imitate God by walking in love. The most prominent way in which we imitate God in this world is as we walk in love. God is love. He always has been loved. There's never been a moment ever in which love didn't exist because God is a triune God, one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, and for all of eternity past, this glorious triune God was perfectly loving one another and sharing in that love. And so this is the kind of love that marks who God is, and hence we who are brought into his family now are called to reflect this family trait. The word walk is a term that refers to the totality of our lives. As we walk step by step, moment by moment through life, we are to walk in the sphere of love, wherever we are, in our home, in our family, in our neighborhood, in our church community, at work, at the gym, at the grocery store, on the roads. Love is to be the increasingly defining characteristic of God's people. Now, the word love can be pretty vague, can it not be? We use that word love in a lot of ways in our culture. What does he mean by love? Well, again, Paul leaves nothing to our imagination. In this passage, he defines exactly what he means when he calls us to walk in love. He says, walk in love just as, in this way, this is the kind of love I'm talking about, just as Christ loved us. The, the ultimate measure and means of our walking in love is Christ's love for us. This is amazing. Notice, in, we're not only beloved children of our Father, verse 1, but we are deeply loved by our elder brother. Our elder brother, Jesus, loved us. When the New Testament speaks of Christ's love for us, it almost always is speaking of the ultimate and irrefutable demonstration of that love, his sacrificial giving of himself on our behalf in order to rescue us from our sin. And that's exactly what the context here says. As Christ loved us and gave himself up. Literally, the idea of voluntarily delivered himself up and over for us in our place. Have you lost the awe and wonder of that truth? Our elder brother willingly took the blame for our sin. Now, we have three boys, and I don't often see them taking the blame for each other's sins as brothers. Usually, it's the fingers being pointed. He started it. Not our elder brother. Though we rightfully deserved the finger of blame, our elder brother took that on himself, laying his life down at great cost to himself so that we could be brought into his family as younger brothers and sisters and actually fully share in the family inheritance that Christ alone was promised and deserves. And notice chapter 5, verse 2, the sacrificial love was an atoning sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering, which the, says that means the Father accepted this. It brought God pleasure, this work of redemption that Christ accomplishes for us. Notice in doing this, loving us in this way, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, does exactly what we adopted children of God are called to do. He imitates his Father by walking in love. Now this is comforting to us because we know we failed so often to imitate our Father. But Jesus is a perfect Savior. He did for us what we failed to do. Whereas we fail to love all the time, Jesus never did. He loved in our place. And that righteousness is given to us and uh, attributed to our account by grace as part of God's redeeming work. And so clearly we see that at the heart of the Christian ethic is a call to love to increasingly and comprehensively in all areas of our life imitate God 
imitate our older brother by grace because of what he has done for us. Our experience of God's transforming gospel changes us to mirror that very love in our lives and relationships around the world. Now, this is important for you as a church because according to John 13, Jesus himself said the defining mark that people will know that you're my disciples is how you love one another, John 13, 34, and 35. So there's no place in this area that someone should be able to come in other than other gospel-believing and experiencing churches and experience more authentic love, where people from different backgrounds with different personalities, different education levels, different socioeconomic uh, situations, different uh, interests and hobbies, despite all those differences, come together and lay their life down for one another because of Jesus because of Jesus empowering them and compelling them to love in this way and their shared experience of Christ and union with him. And this is another, also why you as a church ought to be uh, inviting people into your life who are lost to be part of observing your community with other Christians. Because it's one thing for other people to kind of dismiss you as an individual and say, okay, he's a really nice guy, there's something different about him. But when they come in and observe a, a community of people laying their life down for one another, that's a lot harder to dismiss. And that's why I would encourage you to not only be verbally witnessing to people and evangelizing them about the good news of Jesus, but also to be inviting them to be part of your life with a small group of friends, uh, invite an uh, unsaved person you're witnessing, or invite them to church and help them to come and see love on display. It's a powerful testimony to the gospel. All right, so this love needs to characterize the totality of our lives. In your home, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your friendships, at work, in this church, in your neighborhood, we God's people, fueled daily by the love of Christ, overflow in showing that same sacrificial lay your life down love to others. Now, there's so many ways we could apply that, and I'm trusting the Spirit will do that in your life where you need it. But I want us now to circle back to this issue of foster and adoptive care. So we think about imitating God by walking in love. One unmistakable manifestation of God's love in Scripture is his compassion for the oppressed. You read through the Scripture, Many, many times and places you see God's heart being moved and taking note of those in this world who are being oppressed as a result of living in this fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. The orphan, the widow, the foreigner are ones that come up over and over again. In particular, the fatherless. God is described as the defender of the fatherless. God is described as the father of the fatherless. God is described as the one who places the lonely in families, Psalm 68. And so it follows that we, his people, as we are being progressively transformed into the image of his son, who demonstrated the same compassion in his earthly ministry, and as we are people who ourselves have experienced the glory of God's adopting grace, Adoption is our story, too. It makes sense that one of the ways that we will apply the call to love is by loving and serving those in our area who need safe, loving families. We are uniquely equipped as God's people to this task. The gospel has taught us how to love at cost, with suffering, with risk, that's how God has loved us. And so we uniquely know and are compelled and enabled and empowered by this experience of the gospel to love in the same way, to persevere in love despite great difficulty. Adoptive and foster care and wraparound ministries provides an amazing platform to demonstrate this redemptive love. Now, not everyone is called to adopt and foster. I wouldn't even begin to come into a place and say, all of you should do this. Many shouldn't do this, can't do this. But some can. Some can. 
Some have the space in their home and their heart. And so one of our initiatives of Fostering Hope we simply call Plus One. Rather than calling upon a church to be overwhelmed and burdened with the fact, wow, there's 500 families shortage in Rhode Island. What should we do? All I'm asking is for local churches such as yours to commit to praying and asking God, God, by your spirit, would you raise up at least one more family from our midst than is currently engaged in foster adoptive care? Just pray that. Are you willing and brave enough to ask God to do that? You know, if 25 and 50 churches in our region see just one at least family raised up in a, over the course of a year, that's 25, 50 new Christian families. That's 50 to 100, perhaps, new kids in Christian homes that weren't there previous. And then another plus one, and then another plus one. And in a, in a decade, we have a, a robust group of Christians helping to meet this need. So I challenge you as a church and whatever mechanism that you have that you pray to make this part of your prayer together. Lord, we know there's a need in our backyard. There are kids who need homes. Maybe one of us is part of the answer. Would you, by your spirit, just raise one of us up? And then when that family is raised up, another initiative we have is called Support One because it's a hard thing to, uh, to love children in that situation at times. There are unique stressors to foster and adoptive care, even above and beyond the normal stressors of, of uh, parenting and your, your biological children. And so part of the call is what we call support one. Some of you can't do foster and adoptive care, but you want to support someone who does. And so there may be some in the church who would say, we can't do foster care, but as God raises someone up, we'll come, we need at least four individuals, singles, young adults, couples, older couples to commit to supporting that one family that's doing it. We'll pray for them. We'll make a meal for them once a month. We'll become babysitters to make sure they get a date night out every once in a while. We'll, we'll mentor their children. We'll be the uncle or aunt to, to help uh, support them in this way. That's a tangible way that you could support. And so I want to really challenge you as a church, just begin praying about this. Just, just put it before the Lord and say, Lord, what might our role be? And then beyond that, as churches in a region begin to be compelled to walk in love in this way, then we can go to the state, which I already have in Rhode Island, because there's quite a few churches who are catching this vision and say, you know, we have a lot of Christians who just want to love and serve the foster care community. What are some ways we can do that? Here are some ideas that we have. And so we're working on some programs, and I won't get into them all now for time's sake, but we're, we're working on some programs that will tie the resources and the gifts and the, the, the mentoring ability of Christians to the need that exists in the foster care community to help people who want to love and serve them in some real tangible ways. Orphan care is redemptive at its root. Sin is the root cause. The reason we have orphans in this world is because we live in a fallen world. The reason parents die is because death exists, and death exists because of sin. The reason that there are parents who have issues in their life, struggles that they can't overcome, substance abuse and anger and domestic violence, is because we live in a broken world under the rule of sin. So the ultimate solution, the ultimate solution to the orphan care crisis is the promise of a new heaven and a new earth where true righteousness dwells, where Christ reigns in perfection. That day is coming. Sin will be no more and Christ will reign. But until then, until then, as we, the hands and feet of our, our Lord in this world, see the most vulnerable around us in need, let's, as a church community, walk in love according to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the immeasurable love that you've given us. Lord, we stand here despite recognizing our own inherent brokenness and unworthiness. We stand here as those, those who have trusted Christ fully, eternally, unchangingly loved by you. We worship and adore you for the great work of adoption you've accomplished for us. Thank you for placing us in your family. Thank you for the spirit of adoption you've granted us, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Thank you for our glorious elder brother who accomplished this work for us. 
Lord, we pray that you would increasingly make us like our elder brother. By your spirit, progressively change us into that image. Lord, I pray for Cornerstone Church that this church would be characterized by the the passionate, glorious, sacrificial, self-giving love of Christ in all their different activities and relationships. Would you shine forth the glory of your love through this community and draw many, many who are broken, wounded, and need redemption to your son through them. We also pray that in your time, by your will, that you would raise up from this church those who would be particularly called to demonstrate love to the vulnerable children in in this community. Lord, it's your spirit's work, and so we commit it to you, and we ultimately desire it so that the glory of your adopting love will shine brightly here in Rhode Island. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.